0: Today is December fourteenth, two thousand and eleven, and my guest is Alex Tabarrok of George Mason University. His latest book is "Launching the Innovation Renaissance." It's an ebook available for Kindle al at all um, at Amazon and elsewhere for two ninety nine. It's a TED book. Alex has a TED talk based uh, related to the book. Alex, welcome to Econ Talk. Great, great to be here. So I want to start with the problem the book is proposing to uh, fix or at least uh, improve, which is our innovation situation in the United States. I think most people still see the United States as a very innovative place, maybe not in 2011 because our economy is not doing very well, but it's still considered a a place and, and source of innovation. So why is there a concern about the current levels of innovation and entrepreneurship in the United States?
1: Uh, well, innovation is one of those things that uh, more is better. Yes. So I think we would certainly like more. Now, I do take for granted in this book uh, what my colleague Tyler Cowan has called uh, the great stagnation. Um, whether you call it a great or modest stagnation, it is true that since about 1973, the rate of productivity growth uh, in the United States has been below its trend. Below its trend for you know, 1947 to about 1973 – um, and we've been falling below that. And as you know, productivity is the single most important factor in creating a high standard of living. Uh, when we can do more with less, that is better than anything else. And so when our productivity levels are less than what they might be, that's going to be a subject for concern. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. I certainly was part of that, which is
0: that more is better. And I wish we had a, an even more innovative economy. I think. You know my, my problem with Tyler's analysis and to some extent yours, although you don't rely on some, many of the things that Tyler relies on, if you just look at the raw productivity numbers from 47 to 73, it's not like it slowed down in 1973. It's that it suddenly changed its slope dramatically. So th- there's a puzzle there that I suspect has something to do possibly with slower productivity, although that's a little hard to understand given that – the last 20, 30 years have been extremely innovative, at least in our everyday lives. We look around. We see lots of innovation. We also had a big change in our the nature of our economy over that those seven, 60 years that we're talking about. We've had a steady decline in manufacturing as a source of employment and a steady uh, but still a very productive manufacturing center se- uh, sector because of the – innovation that, that's taken place. there, So I'm a little puzzled by those numbers. I don't think – again, if it's one thing to say, well, it's slowed down. If you see an abrupt change like that, you really have to look for things around 1973. And I, I see post-73 being pretty innovative relative to pre-73. If it's not in the data, maybe the data are not measuring some of the gains that, that are out there. And, of course, as we move to a more sector, increasingly service sector-oriented economy, those innovation gains are going
1: to get smaller. It's going to be part of the problem. That's possible. Um, I think it is very difficult to get an intuitive sense of how much innovation is a lot and what we might expect. So I do like this uh, intuitive idea of thinking if we go back uh, 60 years, 1950, we think about 1950 and uh, it's basically a modern world. It's less advanced than our world. But you have uh, television. You've got radio. You have airplanes. You even have a first. Uh, a few large computers are around. Yep. Um, but it's pretty much a modern world. Cars, you cars, cars, absolutely, yeah, cars, cars. Yeah, cars, yeah. yeah sure. Um, now you go back another sixty years uh, to uh, uh, 1900 or so, something like that, in 1890. Totally different world. And it looks there's no airplane. There's no radio. There's no television. And the world from 1890 to 1950, that looks like an impossible change. That looks like science fiction. That doesn't yeah. look like extending out 1890. So I do think that there's also an intuitive argument for the idea that the rate of innovation has not been as high as it was in previous years. If you go back over that time period. Yeah. yeah. But my focus, however, is uh, think we can do better than we are doing now. So let's look at the problems that we have now and where we can do better. And certainly, if there are barriers to innovation, which you
0: identify in the book, uh, uh, then um, we should get rid of them if, if, if we can. So let's talk about those. So uh, you identify a whole bunch of different problems and opportunities that aren't being taken advantage of. So the first one you mentioned is, is the U.S. patent system, which is a little ironic because, of course, it was put into place to preserve incentives for innovation. So make the case for and against patents. What's the
1: argument? I mean the argument for patents is that imitation is a lot cheaper than innovation. So that if you will, if a firm innovates, creates something new, and another firm can come along, imitate that product, eat away all those profits, and the first firm can't recover its research and development costs.
0: And that, uh, then they wouldn't have an incentive to to do them, and therefore it won't get much innovation. That's exactly,
1: the then they wouldn't innovate in the first place. Yeah, I- exactly right. Um, Now, there's a few, there's lots of arguments against. So one of the first arguments is just to ask, you know, are patents necessary? Um, Because often it takes a long time to imitate a product. It's not even easy to imitate a product. So are patents necessary? And I have a number of examples. Um, I look at roses, for example. Uh, Roses have been around for thousands of years. The Chinese uh, emperor had hundreds of books in his library about how to propagate roses. No one has ever claimed that we don't have enough new roses. And yet, for the first time ever in 1930, uh, we created in the Plant Patent Act, we could patent roses. So did patenting of roses lead to more beautiful roses, better-looking roses? People could capture the benefits without fear being copied. And- exactly. Did it lead to a flowering? <laughs> no, it did not. Uh, so uh, we didn't see any big increase in rose innovation. In fact, we might have seen a, a little bit of a decrease. Moreover, um, even today... Most new roses are not patented. Uh, And in fact, this is true. Most inventions, most innovations are not patented. I think people are a little bit surprised at this. Uh, But in most fields, with a few exceptions, chemicals, uh, pharmaceuticals being really the two biggest important exceptions. Uh, So uh, in a lot of fields, some fields we don't even allow patents, like fashion, highly innovative, no patents at all. But in all fields... Uh, most innovations and inventions are simply not patented at all.
0: And I, you know, you mentioned an example I've been thinking about recently, which is sports. Somebody innovates a new formation in football; it can't be patented. But coaches spend hours looking for a small edge. It's true that once you see how it works, you can copy it. But usually, the person who creates it, for a variety of reasons, might be able to implement it better than the copier, uh, either because they understand it better, either because it's theirs, they have more passion for it. Uh, and that's also true, of course, in, in many, many cases with ideas that people come up with ways to make it harder to copy without using patents and the monopoly power uh, that come with them. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of innovation in the fashion world uh, without patents. We had a uh, podcast on that. We'll put a link up up on that. But there are exceptions, as you point out. So you, you, would, you, would not, um, you would not change or you would not get rid of patents on,
1: on pharmaceuticals. Why? So pharmaceuticals are the, really the classic case of where the innovation to imitation costs are extraordinarily high. So it costs about a billion, new, billion dollars to create a new pharmaceutical. Uh, and to cre- the, the first pill cost a billion dollars. The second pill costs 50 cents. So that's a classic case where imitation costs really are low. So um, I I do think there's a very good case. That's the best case for uh, patents in a field um, like that. But my question is, why does every innovation deserve or require the same 20-year patent? That's crazy. Why do we have a system which gives a $1 billion pharmaceutical where there's $1 in research and development costs? We give that a 20-year patent and one-click shopping? We give it the same 20-year patent? That makes no sense whatsoever. So what I suggest is a more flexible system. I'd like to have a a 20-year patent maybe, a 15-year patent, maybe a three-year patent, something like that. Um, and then we could say, look, you want to apply for a three-year patent, we're going to get this through the system uh, quickly, we won't look at it so much. If you want a 20-year the, patent, however – The hurdle to get, uh, to make the case for it smaller. Exactly, exactly. You want a 20-year patent though, you'd better show us that uh, you're really deserving, you put some costs in there.
0: Now, just a side note on the pharmaceuticals, I was surprised you didn't mention this. Maybe you're just trying to be uh, uh, strategic, but – it's true it costs a billion dollars to develop a new drug, but there's a reason it costs a billion dollars, and a lot of that cost is to no avail. It's it's replicating sometimes tests that happen in, already happened in Europe. Uh, a lot of it's the regulatory structure around the drug industry, and people who are worried about drug pricing, one of the ways to solve the drug pricing problem is to remove the patent or shorten the patent, I'd like to shorten the – reduce the
1: research and development costs and the approval costs. Are you with me there? Absolutely. So, you know, we have drug lag and even more importantly we have drug loss. Um, There are lots of drugs um, today which probably could be invented, but people know going in the costs are just too high. So sure, I would like to see those costs come down. As a theoretical point however, I still think that the pharmaceutical industry is the best case uh, for a, a patent in that the Innovation imitation costs are very high, but there are other things we can do to bring those costs down. So l- let's talk about the expansion of patentability that, that's happened in the
0: last 15 years or so where the courts have allowed ideas to be patented, business concepts, um, and a lot of people, you're one. Others have come forward and said, this is crazy. And a point you emphasize, which I think is very compelling, is that when you make it hard uh, When you patent ideas, it makes it hard for people to use those ideas to create new innovation. So, one of the disincentive effects of patenting is that it discourages ideas being used in creative and new ways, which are the everything is, as you point out in your book, standing on the shoulder. We're always standing on the shoulders of giants. The Newton quote Newton didn't have as you say, didn't have to pay for it, but the rest of us are. You can say, well, that's not a big deal, so you pay for it. But the problem is that paying for it isn't so simple.
1: Right. So let me come back to that point uh, in a minute. Let me. Give, I want to give you, before we quite get there, I want to give you another example, which I think is important. I want your audience to think about the most innovative U.S. company, most important, innovative U.S. company that you can think of. Maybe you're thinking about Apple. Some people would. Uh, some people would. That's definitely an innovative. I'm thinking company. about the Patriots, Bill Belichick, because <laughs> right. I like the sports thing. Or,
0: right. or maybe I don't know. A fashion. I don't have any fashion expertise, as listeners know. But go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: I'm going to say Walmart. Okay. Now you think about Walmart. It's the world's largest corporation. Uh, half a trillion in sales every year. Estimated to have saved consumers a quarter of a trillion dollars annually. Okay. So this is an incredibly important uh, US uh, corporation and if you think about the booming 1990s where were the big productivity gains gains in those uh, uh in that decade in retail boring you know 100 year old retail industry and yet that is where we saw really big productivity improvements a huge chunk of that coming from Walmart and how did they do do this was it you know some new high tech invention no, they did it by better training of the sales staff, better training of cashiers. Uh, they did it through some, um, you know, RFID chips and things like that. Application so the technology, the inventory process—a big in, in, innovation there's that clearly was not patented. Exactly, not patented. Uh, in fact, Walmart, world's largest corporation, has about sixty patents uh, to its name. You know, a, a trivial amount, including one for a shoebox. Uh, so here we see. A incredibly important, innovative U.S. company not using patents at all, and I think that's important to really remember. It's a great point.
0: I, I only caveat I would I would add is that sixty is a small number compared to I think you you give Microsoft which is in the thousands or right. something. But it could be that one of those sixty is the key patent that allowed them to use some sort of information technology. But but I think that's not true. My guess is, as you point out. They figured out some ways to apply technology and, and training and other things. Everybody copied them. Target copied them. Kmart copied them. Other cop- Others copied them who've disappeared because they couldn't do it as well uh, for a, a whole bunch of reasons that you and I have no idea what, the, what they are. I assume it had to do with how it was implemented, who implemented it, other inter- synergies they had with other stuff they were doing, um, but clearly – They were able to be innovative without it. But in the area of high tech, and then we'll get to – where are we going to go after this? We're going to go back to – Cumulative innovation. Oh, and ideas. So you know, one of the – when we talk about these drawbacks to the current system and how lenient it is and allowing Mm -hmm. things to be patented that that make it harder to innovate, but I look at the pace of innovation. It looks pretty good, right? I I look at the gadgets and the – in the internet, yeah, it was. It's kind of crazy that one click is is patentable. It seems kind of crazy that uh, people can patent ideas, business concepts. Um, it, it's almost as silly as saying a podcast is should be patented. Whoever gave, had the first podcast, that was a great new invention, a radio thing on the web. But obviously, that's that's foolish and, and discourages innovation and things that, that make the world a better place. But what's the evidence that this is causing a big problem? It, it does appear to be make a lot of employment for lawyers who have to deal with all this, these systems and you know, make sure that, that they've taken care of all the intellectual property. Is there something to be worried about?
1: Well, I think the problem is, is that you may be looking uh, for the evidence you know, where, where the lamp is, right? Yeah. Uh, in that, yeah, you're looking for evidence of uh, how innovation has been reduced in highly innovative fields. Um, but these highly innovative fields, the internet and uh, smartphones and so forth, They've been innovative, um, not because of these patents, but despite them. And I think the situation is becoming uh, worse in these fields. So what we're seeing right now is firms like Google and Microsoft, they're buying up these patent arsenals. And they're not doing it because they need access to those technologies. They're doing it so that some other firm can't sue them and prevent them from innovating. Well, what's bad about that? Well, what's bad about it? I call this the uh, mutually assured destruction uh, and mutually assured destruction, I think, was not the greatest way to maintain peace. Uh, mutually assured destruction is probably not the greatest way to maintain innovation either. Uh, and I think what the real problem of this idea of innovation through strength, we will be able to innovate because we have this patent arsenal behind us, is that small firms don't have that. And so we're yeah. seeing kind of an, uh, an IP feudalism. Yeah. We're seeing these very big companies – Get a hold of these arsenals so no one can attack them. But that means that the small firms can't attack them either. In fact, the small firms are being crushed. And what do we know about uh, really uh, disruptive, creative disruption? Uh, That often comes from the small firms. So I am worried that we are going to see, yes, you can get innovation if it's from big Google. But what about the little Google? You know What about the Google of the 20, Google. 20 yeah. years ago? Yeah, the next Google. Right, and which I doesn't
0: think, exist because it can't have the lawyer legal department at it, a small size that, that its competitors Exactly.
1: To. So the innovation, which we're not seeing, that's the invisible innovation. We're not yeah. seeing it. You know, can't look for where it is. So some of my best friends are lawyers, and
0: it turns out a lot of my best friends are intellectual property lawyers. I have – I can think of at least three, maybe four, good friends of mine who are in this world, and they're the nicest people. Uh, they're and I, and, I, and I really mean they're they're good friends. They're not just people I happen to know who are who are IP lawyers. Uh, they, of course, not surprisingly, think that intellectual property and and the expansion of property rights into this area is very natural and and crucial and and wonderful. Um, They may be a little too close to the problem. Uh, So I'm wondering – and there are a lot of them. uh, Are they an important special interest? Obviously Google and large corporations generally are going to want to discourage small firms from innovating. Uh, Are the legal experts who spend all their their hours – worrying about whether this intellectual property is accessible or not and at what price and negotiating it, um, they have a strong stake in keeping the world as it is. Are they discouraging the kind of innovations in this area that we might want to be seeing?
1: In a way, though I wouldn't phrase it like that. Because they're nice people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And of course, a IP lawyer very naturally wants to think of themselves as promoting innovation. And when you take a partial equilibrium point of view, that's probably what they're doing. But I think you have to see it in in the larger picture. And I would frame it like this. So I think an incorrect framing, one which we see a lot, is that it's sort of consumers versus the producers of intellectual property. And the the consumers want less intellectual property and the producers want more. I think that's a bad way of looking at it. Because when we come to these fields where there's a lot of cumulative innovation – where you are building a product on previous ideas standing on the shoulders of giants, then what you have to recognize is that previous intellectual property has veto power on new intellectual property. And intellectual property has two sides. Yes, uh, it's an incentive uh, to innovate, but it's also a cost. When you're building on previous intellectual property, it's a cost of innovation – patents can be a cost of innovation as well as a incentive for innovation so think about a product you know which builds I- 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 if we have a uh, a product which requires you know four other patents in order to to move ahead built on four other patents each one of those owners is going to say they want 30% of the profits then that's going to be a hard exchange yeah, to make it's tough but when we have uh, a hundred previous patents, each of them wants 10% of the profits. That's almost an impossible deal to make. Uh, you know, the Kosian bargaining is really hard when you've got lots and oh, lots and of these people. involved. just the involved. pure
0: transaction cost of tracking down the hundred and contacting them and, and opening the negotiation process.
1: Exactly right. And so I think, uh, when we look at the big picture, that's where innovation is going to be slowed down. And it's also where what we need to tell the innovators is not this is a way of restricting your your rights. It's a way of making innovation easier. It's a way of lowering the cost of your innovation. It's a way so that you don't need the permission of everyone else to innovate. We want people to stand on the shoulders of giants. As I say in the book, you know, Newton might not have seen so far had he been required to pay for the privilege. So what we want to tell innovators: Yes, go ahead and be the Newton. Stand on the shoulders of giants, and you don't have to pay for that. We're going all going to be able to see farther.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an inspiring vision. Um, what are the practical? So what, one way to practically implement that is to change, as you suggested earlier, the timing. So not every patent would get twenty years. Any other ideas on what we would you? stop some things from being patented at all. I mean,
1: the remarkable thing is that the extension of patents to uh, software and semiconductors and business methods and the broadening of the interpretation of these patents has been almost all judge-driven. So this is actually not uh, legislation so much. It's judges. Judges have decided to interpret these patents in these broad ways, and they don't have to do that. So, uh, you know, the law actually hasn't changed that much. I talk a little bit in the book about... Uh, Edison and the light bulb. And there actually was a previous patent. Um, and the Sawyer and Mann had patented the, uh, to make the, the incandescent, uh, filament any fibrous or textile material. And Edison came along and he tried, you know, 5,000 different materials before he hit on the, the one. Uh, happened to be bamboo, and not just any bamboo, but bamboo that he had dispatched a man to Japan to find the right bamboo. Um So he had gone through all of these different uh, uh types of materials, and yet Sawyer and Mann sued him and said, we have a patent on any fibrous material. And the court looked at that, and they said, no, this is crazy. They said, you can't give such a broad patent. Sawyer and Mann didn't actually investigate all 5,000 of these, uh, and if we were to give a, such a broad patent, this would actually discourage innovation. Um, so they said no to the Sawyer and Mann patent. They let Edison go ahead. Um, we could do more of that today. The trouble today is we have not done what the judges did in the Sawyer and Mann case. We've said you can get a patent on any fibrous material uh, To be the, in, 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 analogously in many other fields. We've given these broad patents. And that actually discourages people from doing the real work of implementing, of actually creating a product. Now you can just patent an idea. It's like a science fiction author can patent ideas long before they're ever even possible to be implemented. You can patent the idea even before it's technologically possible. And that has actually discouraged innovation.
0: Uh, Let's move on to education, which is the next uh, broad theme of your book. Uh you argue that the uh, American education system both uh, k through twelve and at the college level has got some serious problems so let's uh let's talk about it w- what's wrong with and of course, as a result, since education is a key part of innovation and and uh and productivity, if you don't have a well educated populace, you're not going to have a very good economy uh what's wrong with their education system
1: let's start with k through twelve here's two remarkable facts which just blow me away uh Right now, uh, in the United States, uh, people 55 to 64-year-old, they're more likely to have had a high school education than 25 to 34-year-olds. Just a little bit, but they're more likely. So you look everywhere in the world and what do you see? You see younger people having more education than older people. Not true in the United States. So that
0: is a shocking claim.
1: Incredible. Incredible. The reason is the dropout rate, I assume, has increased. Exactly. So the high school dropout rate uh, has increased. Now 25% of males in the United States drop out of high school. And that's increased since the 1960s. Even as the prospects for a high school dropout have uh, gotten much worse, we've seen an an increase. 21st century, 25% of males not graduating high school. That's mind-boggling. Why, uh, given the – I mean one of the underlying
0: facts in uh, related to education, which has stayed true for over that whole 50 years, is that the more education you get on average – and I'm going to emphasize on average because we're going to talk about why on average can be very misleading. But on average, high school graduates do better than high school dropouts. Co- people with some college do better than high school graduates. People who graduate from college do better than – people who have some college. People with graduate degrees do better than – college grads and the differences are large Uh, particularly if you compare a college graduate to a high school dropout it's an enormous difference so normally we would say well this problem kind of solves itself there's a natural incentive to stay in school and I really wouldn't worry about it why should we be worrying about it it doesn't seem to be working why isn't it working and what what should be done what could be done
1: so I think there's a few problems one is um, the quality of teachers uh, uh, has actually gone down so I think that's been a problem and this is a case of you know uh every silver lining has a cloud or something mm-hmm. like that in that in 1970 in the 1970s about half of college educated women became teachers this is at a time when there's maybe you know 4% are getting an MBA less than 10% are going to medical school going to law school these smart women they're becoming teachers well as we've opened up uh you know by 1980 we've got 30% or so of the incoming class Of uh, MBAs, doctors, lawyers are women. So these which is great, which is great, which is absolutely great. Their comparative advantage moving into these fields, product productivity, and so forth. Uh, And yet, that has meant that on average, the quality of teachers, the the pool which we are drawing from, has gone down in terms of their SAT levels and and so forth. Um, So I think we need to fix that. Um, You know, some conservatives are saying. You know, it's all the unions and we need to crush the unions or something like You know, there's something to that. But my point of view is that actually –
0: Maybe not crush them. (laughs) Let them – get them out of the – have them stand aside so that innovation can take place.
1: Right. (laughs) You're much more uh, (laughs) uh, politic than I. Um, My point of view is that actually what we need to do is to pay teachers more. Now, we need to come up with a bargain where if we're going to pay more – then uh, we need to uh, test. We need to qualify. We need, we need to make sure we are getting quality. Uh, we need higher standards. We do pay them more.
0: We pay them a lot more than we did in 1960. Uh, but we did it in a way that didn't guarantee we got better teachers. That And you could argue we just didn't pay them enough more to compete with the alternatives. But I think it's worse than that. So So if we doubled all teacher salaries tomorrow – they wouldn't become better teachers. The, the challenge is how do you encourage good teachers to be attracted to those higher wages and bad teachers to be rejected because they're not, they're not,
1: not good enough? Right. We, we, we paid them more, though we paid them less compared to those other yes. uh, fields that I was talking about that women now have an opportunity to go into. So it used to be a, a teacher and a lawyer starting off on day one have about the same salary. Today on day one, the lawyer has got three times the salary. So in terms of the opportunities... Which are available to smart people, uh, we made teaching a much less desirable place for smart t- people to be.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how important that is.
1: It's an interesting point.
0: Uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of podcasts on education, and uh, we'll put some links up to those. Encourage people who want to listen to more ideas on this uh, to go ahead. But it just strikes me that if we think about K through 12, a lot of K-through somewhere. I'm not sure it's where that – the second number is, but it's not 12. It doesn't require the skills of a great MBA legal medical mind. Uh, It requires a set of subtle and tangible skills that I'm not sure related to IQ to be a great teacher. Uh, Maybe high school math, you need need bright people and we don't do a very good job attracting math teachers. I think that's a problem. Um, It's not obvious to me – that the gray lining to that silver uh phenomenon of of women going into more uh well good paying fields is the problem with our educational system is the problem with our with the way we teach teach our kids.
1: Well I think it's one problem. I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit on this point in that uh I have two kids and hard enough for me to manage two kids.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: the idea of managing 20 or 30 in a classroom, keeping them all interested in going forward and, and dealing with each one of their problems, uh, I, I think that's a really tough job. Oh, I think it's a very tough job. I just don't think IQ or the, the skills that,
0: say, make someone a successful doctor are necessarily uh, means that we, we, we don't have much of it. I don't, I don't think we need to take people out of medicine and keep them in the classroom.
1: Right, but those skills... Um, <clears throat> Uh, they are avail, excuse me. <clears throat> uh, but those skills, uh, they do have alternative uses. No doubt. And if those alternative uses are being paid highly, then in order to get those skills, you know, we need to draw from them.
0: I agree. I um, agree with that, obviously.
1: So the, and the other part of it, so one part of it is, you know, paying teachers more, but requiring more of, of these, uh, uh, uh teachers as, as well. And the other part of it is I think that we have sort of pushed one road, one, uh, yellow brick road to education um in our society. We've said the only type of education that matters is the sit down, uh, put, sit on your hands, sit quietly, pay attention, listen to the teacher, absorb what they're saying, go to college, do this for 12 to 14 to 16 years, and that is the type of success which which we count. It's the only type of success which we count. And I think
0: and, and, and the goal of high school is to aspire to do that for another four years somewhere else. Exactly. Harder harder classes
1: perhaps, but but it's the same model. Exactly right. And yet uh, it's not – we need to listen to the dropouts. The dropouts are telling us something important because first they're dropping out of high school. Then a lot of them, even the ones who make it to college, end up dropping out of college. So this type of learning – Hard for a college professor to understand, but, you know, some people think college is boring. <laughs> Strange, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Strangely enough. Or high school algebra, yeah. That's right. So what we need to do is to think about other types of uh, education. Um, you know, people think that the only type of education is schooling, and it's particularly college schooling. But there's other types of education. And in, in Europe, here, I think they've done a better job of creating more roads to a high school workforce. So in Germany and Finland and Switzerland, many of these other European countries, 40 to 70 percent of the uh, kids in those countries opt for a a high school program which involves some uh, apprenticeship, involves some training. So it's uh, workplace learning which combines theory with practice. The students get paid. They are acculturated into the adult world. We don't block off all these teenagers into their own world. We introduce them into the adult world and we provide them with uh, skills. And these are not, you know, in the United States, we think about these programs. Vocational training is like shop class. Being a mechanic. Right. But there's a lot more to it uh, than that. Um, being an optician, uh, there's a new field called mechatronics. Uh, you know, there's the field – the old term for it is, uh, you know, steam fitting, this pipe fitting. Uh, but when you actually look at it, it's a you know, massive operations control of how a modern factory works. So these are high-skilled re- jobs, require a lot of intelligence, require a lot of creativity, but we don't re- reward that.
0: And to lead, lead us into the college discussion, of course, when we have aspects of our college education system that are useful for those – activities, we have to gussy them up with intellectual uh, bells and whistles and window dressing to make it feel like it's scholarly. Uh, There's obviously a lot of practical things you have to understand to run a factory, to run a a warehouse. Uh, We teach some of those things in business schools, but business schools that just do that would, would feel, well, that's just a trade. And so they have to have this intellectual pretension if we're going to have them in the university. And the same is true with legal education, right? Legal. Every lawyer I've ever met says, I didn't learn anything about being a lawyer in law law school. What would you learn? Uh, The theory of law. It's like interesting. You'd pay – you'd have five to ten years, maybe more of student debt to pay for something that isn't very useful. I mean it's interesting. Maybe somebody would like to pay for it, but that's the only road. We don't have a lot of vocational training in business and – Uh, uh, legal professions and elsewhere, and other activities in the universities. We have it outside the university. I think there's, I see the ads. I I assume they're training some people. But a lot of what we do in college is not exactly what people would find most useful. It's interesting.
1: Exactly. We've divorced the world of work from college, and you know we've made college. uh, I mean, it's a great experience. Uh, You know, I don't want to. I look at my own university, our university, and we have, you know, two. Olympic-sized swimming pools. We've got great athletic facilities. We've got uh, restaurants on campus and things like this. Um, uh, but it's totally divorced from the work world.
0: Yeah, it, it's str- well. Let's turn to college now. Uh, you have some interesting observations about what's happened on college campuses educationally, particularly with respect to what people study. And I, I find it funny because you know there's an enormous literature in, in economics where people uh, look at the relationship between Education and and labor force outcomes, wages, compensation, salary, and the education variable that enters into the equation is inevitably years of schooling. As if each year is a, it's like lifting weights. You know, I've lifted. If you lift fifty pounds, you, you get stronger. You lift twenty five, you lift one hundred, get stronger than fifty. So twelve years of schooling is more than ten, which is more than eight. But of course, in the Set data set are all these people who are studying radically different things some of which guarantee you a very high paying job from the beginning followed by some great ap- appreciation and others have no employability whatsoever it's a very uh, strange model so talk about what's going on in the college campuses with respect to what people are studying yeah I was amazed it's shocking that some of the numbers in your in your book
1: yeah I was I was amazed when I uh, looked into this data. So we think about you know innovation and high tech and and we think you know computer science right? Computers are exploding, the internet is exploding, and yet we graduated more students in computer science 25 years ago than we did today than we do today. Just By a, a little small bit. amount, By a but small it doesn't amount. matter.
0: The population is obviously radically larger today as a proportion. Exactly, but it, and, and the economy is bigger, and there are more
1: computers. So <laughs> exactly, um, and the same thing is true. In uh, mathematics and statistics, in uh, chemical engineering, you look at all of the so-called STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and we're stagnating. We're absolutely uh, flat. Uh, what has grown? Well, you know, one of the things, just to give an example, is the visual and performing arts. You know, we graduated more students in visual and performing arts than in computer science, chemical engineering, and microbiology combined. Combined. And we've doubled We've doubled the number of students graduating in visual and performing arts over the past 25 years at the same time as the STEM fields have been absolutely flat. Communications are way up. Um,
0: Part of that's because there's a lot more jobs than there used to be in some of those fields, right?
1: Sure. So there's nothing, um, you know, I have nothing against. The explosion
0: of the media world and entertainment in the United States has allowed people to major and study things that wouldn't have been very productive
1: in the past. Absolutely, so I think some of these things are good. Do I think some of the time we have sold students a bill of goods, so you know we graduate we've doubled the number of students graduating in psychology, and yet in psychology there aren't enough there aren't as many jobs in the entire country in psychology as we graduate every year yeah. so but
0: both well you know obviously what's going on there is uh, you know that people are interested in psychology. Uh, they want to learn about themselves. They see the college experience as a exploration of self and identity. There are people are between the ages of 18 and 21. That's a very attractive experience and psychology seems like a normal way to do that. It's not the hardest field. Uh, the grading is relatively easy relative to those other fields we've been talking about. So a lot of people study it. They don't expect to get a job as a psychologist. You might ask them, what do they expect to get a job in? That's a good question. But that's what they're doing. Uh, College in compared to say 1950 where college was for people who wanted to go out and get a job, college today is an extended form for some people, an extended form of adolescence, uh, an opportunity to find one's way in the world. It's a very expensive way to do it. Um, But that's clearly part of what's going on.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, going back to all those athletic facilities and so forth, yeah, this is consumption good, and you know there's no problem with the consumption good uh, as long as you understand what you're buying. But also, it's the taxpayers who are subsidizing most Correct. of this education. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, On the be- grounds, by the way, the economists who invoked there's this externality. Well, there's that exactly. much of an externality if you go study. Uh, well, you pick it. I don't know basket weaving. I'll pick something really.
1: Uh, <laughs> No, that's absolutely right. Um, there's very little evidence uh, for their for a positive externality uh, from higher education. Very little evidence overall. If there is an argument to be made, I think the best argument is for the science, detect- the STEM fields. Um, so, if we're going to subsidize college education, I would have us subsidize uh, the fields where there's most likely to be these positive externalities. Um, Can you imagine? Alex, that we told
0: students entering George Mason University and, and the other 50 plus great, and many of them are great universities in, in, in many aspects of what they teach. So we're, we're being a little tough on the schools, but let's face this possibility that we would tell people, well, you know, if you come in and you want to study psychology, that's $25,000. If you want to study engineering, it's 5000 not. That's going to be a tough sell. to the body body politic, I think.
1: Uh, Well, you're probably right, though, uh, it's all, uh, I guess maybe we do need some marketing managers (laughs) to tell us how how best to sell this uh, uh, idea. Maybe we should sell it as a discount. If you're willing to uh, do, you know, the science and the technology and help your country, you know, then uh, you get a discount on your education. Actually,
0: I think the, I think the, um, the externalities are small in general. I think the, um the number of people who transform the world and add to both just not just American well-being, but people around the world through their innovations, a very small number. Uh, the average graduate in the STEM fields is not doing that. So I'd say the the, the argument for subsidy to start with is small and we ought to be using Prizes and other activities. You mentioned prizes early in the book, but other ways to to incentivize the most gifted people in our society to go into those STEM fields and, and transform them. So,
1: yeah, of course, we do know that the creative people, uh, in, in, you know, instead of taking psychology, they do what Steve Jobs did and you know go to India for uh, you know a few months, and that, that's not a bad thing to do either. Yeah, well, and of course, you know, we talked okay. about dropouts, but
0: you know, there are a lot of great. Wonderful contributors to to the world who don't go to college um, and do all kinds of things. Some of which are in the headlines, but a lot of which are just part of being a successful person in life. Being a good parent. There's not. I don't. I don't think we should oversell the importance of a high salary or a high standard of living for a country. There's a lot of things going on all around the world that are that are not measured that are just as important. Um, so. Going back to the college though in particular and talking about these STEM fields so, so one of the observations you're making, which I think is is very important, obviously important is the fact that college is not a solution in and of itself to people who worry about American competitiveness. a lot of and I think for for special interest reasons meaning people like us who are professors uh, and the, the middle class who overwhelmingly benefit. Not to pour from the subsidies to college, there's always this groundswell of interest that the way we need to get out of our stagnation is to more people need to go to college. Well, what you and I are saying, and I, you're saying, I agree with you, is that maybe too many going already, or if they are going, they ought to study something else.
1: Yeah, I think more we need more education, but education is different than schooling, yeah. and that's the thing which I think most people are failing to see right now. So what
0: you know, what other than hectoring people. And or differential pricing schemes. What what else might be done um, to make some of these fields more attractive? Do we need what, Do we need to do anything? I mean, they they already pay more.
1: Well, you know, one of the problems, People want to, yeah, uh, in, in the university itself is grade inflation because grade inflation has hit the arts and the social sciences much more than it has hit you know mathematics and engineering and so forth. A lot of which are, by the way, the
0: gateway to you know medical school where they're going to weed out lots of people. And they're going to use grades to do
1: it. Exactly. Exactly. So if you want to be a, a lawyer, um, for whatever reason, it is true. The best thing to do is just make get straight A's you know, while you're in college. And if that means you have to do it by taking you know, intro to history or psychology or something like that rather than calculus 101, then that's the way to do it. Uh, because in those, in those history classes and so forth, you're much more likely to get that A. Now, so one thing we could do, if we could create, um, a more even playing field, uh, in terms of grades. And there are ways of doing that. You know, we can look at, for example, statistically and say, okay, if this student, um, got an A while they were in, uh, the history class and they got a C while they're in the math class, while this student got an A in uh, the math class and you know a B in the history class, you know we can even those out and create a overall grade.
0: Doesn't the market do that already? I mean, do, do we really need to worry about that? Don't people understand that history is a little bit easier, more easily easy. E- the grading is easier in say psychology or history. I don't know if it is in history, but I, I've seen actual data on on psychology and on some of the other social sciences. Um, everybody knows that it's not a secret. Why do we need to? Reweight in some formal way. What's the big deal? Yeah, I
1: think it's surprising. I do think that there's a puzzle here, and I don't actually have the solution to this puzzle. Um, but I, but it, it is true that employers don't appear to pay as much attention as you and I would to uh, what uh, what fields that students uh, graduate with. Some exceptions, of of course. Um, but either they find it too difficult to do, um, or they just look at where the person went to college. But I. I I do think there's a puzzle there, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Our colleague, Brian Kaplan,
0: uh, on our sister site, EconLog, uh, often writes that there's very little value added at all to education. It's all signaling. It's all just that I don't care what major you major in. As long as you got through, you showed the persistence. I the only thing I'm paying for is that either you got into the school, which was a filter for quality, and then you got out because that meant you could do that weird thing called sit sit at the desk and write the papers and – Take the tests, and that that's got some value, and so persistence and discipline. And I, I'm not that um, cynical, but but there is as part there is part of that there. I think the other part comes back to what you talked about earlier, which is the quality of high school education. If if high school math is badly taught, uh, if high school science is badly taught, you're gonna. Not get those people when they leave high school excited about studying them at those fields in a, in a more rigorous and intense way in college, and uh, I think that's that's part of the problem.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. If we can start at the bottom and improve uh, people's education all the way along, a- an important point that I want to make about education, by the way, is there's probably no other area where we can have as much of a opportunity to increase innovation and increase growth in an education. I mean, just think about it this way. Almost all U.S. workers will go through the U.S. education system. Not all, but almost all U.S. workers will go through the U.S. education system. So think about if we improved our education system tomorrow. Well, at first, we're only going to get a small gain because only the new workers will come in under the new system. But as we get more and more workers coming in under the improved system... That means that we have a hundred million people educated a little bit better, but a hundred million people a little bit better. We are talking about trillions of dollars of potential gains there. So there's no other place. There's no other bottleneck, uh, where we can have as much influence on the, on the U.S. economy or U.S. society than in the education system because it's where all of our workers are going to be channeled at some point through that system. So we have a small change there means a big change overall over the next 40 years.
0: That sounds good. I'm not sure that's true. I I mean, coming back to what you said earlier, a lot of what we learn in life, uh, we don't learn in a classroom. Um, And so I'm not sure how – I think there are many, many ways that we become more productive and more knowledgeable and more skilled, and we figure those ways out. And we sometimes do that despite our education, and sometimes our education is what well allows us to do it. So, um, you know, I think it's fascinating. You think about your education, and mine, right? We spent a lot, of, lot, we logged a lot of hours in the economics classrooms as undergrads and, and graduate students, and we learned a lot there. Obviously, we learned a huge amount, but. I'm amazed how much I've learned since then. Um, could argue that's what helped me learn how to learn. Certainly there was a basic framework there. But we're in a really narrow technical field, economics. You know, somebody who goes through the standard K through 12 education system and then goes on to study, I don't know, doesn't matter what it is in college. I just have a feeling a lot of what they learns afterwards anyway. Maybe we ought to be shortening the whole process and getting people out into the world at an earlier age if they were mature enough.
1: Maybe. I think there's some truth to that for college for sure for K12 I I think it's it's going to be more important and I would say you know you're right you know people like you and I um, who have alternative sources of education you know our our parents our family friends our peer group all of these things are working in our advantage but for a lot of the kids in high school they don't have those other factors working for sure. in their advantage yeah, for so sure. the one that we can really move the one lever we have I think we need to do everything we can to shift that lever.
0: Trevor yeah, I totally agree with you, no doubt. Um, l- let's talk about government writ large. Uh, you have a provocative idea in the book that we need to get away from the uh, – what you call the warfare welfare state and toward a more innovative uh, perspective in government's role. Talk about the warfare welfare state and what, what do you think
1: we ought to be replacing it with? Well, the warfare welfare state is really what we have in the United States. If we look at where we're spending our money, it's almost huge fraction is in warfare and in welfare. Uh, so you look and at by the-
0: welfare, you mean transfer payments, not just aid to the-
1: poor. Right, not just aid to, you know, family or something like that, but you look at, um, the big four. Um, defense, social security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid. These are a 60%, 70% of the budget. And this is all about, uh transfer payments it 's all about dividing the pie it 's not about growing the growing the pie bigger so much it 's all warfare and welfare we don 't even think about innovation that 's really often not even part of the agenda. The example I give is thinking about uh medical care, Obamacare. you know we had a huge debate over this. It was vociferous, people back and forth okay now, what do we know about medical care? Well, we know two things. We know, one, that a huge amount of medical care is wasted. I think everybody on both the right and the left, uh, agree, agree with this, this point. Um, you know, if at a given point in time, you can spend a lot or you can spend a little and it just doesn't make that much difference. You know, we, you know, look, look at Steve Jobs. Okay. Steve Jobs, one of the wealthiest people in the world, but he gets cancer. His survival probabilities are not that much higher than if you and I got cancer. All of that wealth does very little uh, in the final analysis. We're all going to die, so it doesn't do anything in the yeah. final. Lap, but even a few years, doesn't do it much. I don't think Robin Hanson's so sure of that. We did do that podcast <laughs> on the
0: singularity. You know, he's hope cryogenics. You know, who knows? But uh, let's, let's work with – I'll work with you on that.
1: All right. I'll, I'll go with you. The second thing we know is that even though spending more at any given point in time doesn't buy you much – medical research actually seems to get you an awful lot. So uh, the life expectancy in the United States has been going up uh, a little bit every year. It's, it's fantastic. Even simply looking at the gains from improved uh, cardiovascular uh, survivable survivability, that's actually worth trillions of dollars. The fact that people are living longer is worth trillions. Not all of that is due to, uh, due to research. Some are just eating better when some they were is, younger. Exactly, yeah. uh, and, and so forth. But some of it is. So we have a potential to have trillion-dollar improvements by thinking about innovation. And yet, did that come up in the medical care, in the debate over Obamacare? No, it was all about how to divide the pie. It was all about, is is the pie being divided equally? Does everyone have equal access to uh, medical care? When thinking about it in terms of an innovation framework, it's how can we make, uh, how can we invest research and develop new things which are going to save our lives, which are going to extend lifespan? And the opportunities there are tremendous. And yet you look at the budget for the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation and we're talking, you know, 30 billion, something like that. It's a very small amount compared to what we spend on warfare and welfare. So some of my best friends work
0: there too at the NIH. They're great people. A I, I huge respect for them. Uh, but is that money well spent? You say it's only thirty billion. If it were sixty, you think we'd get
1: a bigger? What? What? You think we'd get more return? I think it's much better spent than uh, a lot of other things we spend on. Um, and I do like. So you know, you and I are certainly not. Uh, we would certainly be in agreement that we don't want to try and centrally plan a science in any way. But if we think about what the uh, NIH, the NSF, how they work, um, I think that's much more coheres with our kind of Hayekian way of viewing things in that the money is not centrally planned. It's p- distributed by peers. So uh, you know, people propose, make proposals to the uh, NSF, and the NSF gets a group of scientists and engineers, and they decide, okay, are we going to fund this or not? It's not perfect. Plenty of problems. But the guy at the top is not making those decisions. It's a much more decentralized process. Yeah, it's got
0: a separate set of problems. There's groupthink. There's fads. There's people honoring their own work implicitly, the people who cite them. There's there's a lot of problems with that. That's life. (laughs) I I, I wonder what the – well, but the the question is somebody like Michael Milken who got prostate cancer and launched a very large effort to – to solve prostate cancer through very – my understanding is very innovative techniques and, and outside the box. Didn't go along with what the NIH was thinking. Uh, so I, I wonder I, – my, my – is not a presumption. I, I just don't have the data at my fingertips. But the amount of privately spent medical research money dwarfs – what NIH – we spend an enormous amount on medical research. Now, people debate how much that's on marketing of new drugs or how much of it's just application rather than fundamental research and that's obviously a relevant issue. But we spend a lot of money on R&D in America.
1: Uh, yeah, w- but they do, do I well, want more of it going through the government? Well, I, I would like more – I would like to see the government budget shift from warfare and welfare towards innovation. So that's what I think we need to sell. Because that's a, uh, that's a story which I think Americans intuitively understand. Americans are very forward thinking, very progressive people. They, they like science. They're interested in a better future. They're thinking about the future. So I think we could sell an innovation state. And I'd much rather us have an innovation state than to be, uh, bombing uh, you Libya, know, <laughs> many other countries. Well, I you think I think it, we're. I think
0: Libya's over. It, it's okay. Oh,
1: <laughs> it, 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 Iran now. is next. You're yeah. behind the times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So just to, just to get people's mindset to change. Of course, I think one important. argument against that would be
0: that, that one of the major uh, initiatives of the Obama administration has been the creation of green innovation in the green area and environmentally friendly stuff that led to a, a, some disastrous. Uh, it still. Story isn't fully unfolded yet, but the cylinder example, where money was a rather large sum of money, five hundred million dollars, was lent to a company that wasn't a viable institution at the time and turned
1: out not to be able to pay it back. So, right, so that's exactly the type of centrally planned uh, science, which I, which I'm not in favor of. So that was money going to a specific company uh, with a specific idea, and at the final end, the final stages. Um, I think the case for investing in much more basic science at a much earlier stage where it's open, uh, you know, open to many different people, you know, again, peer-reviewed, not centrally planned, uh, basic science, as well as from the universities with all those, let's get those uh, uh, STEM uh, graduates, uh, let's get them into the universities, let's fund that a little bit more. That's where I think the case is to be made. Again, STEM is science, technology,
0: engineering,
1: and math, right? Right. Are we in
0: there? Economics is part of the E. Do we, we are not. <laughs> we're STEMish. I'd say we're STEM-like. We're STEMish. Um, we're sort of uh, serious, but among the social sciences, great there. inflation is much <laughs> it's, less in economics. It's true. We're Again, much closer. I've Seen that at least in some data. I've well, looked. That's right. The data I've looked at. It's been true. Um, one thing you didn't talk about, which surprised me, is venture capital industry. So one of the things that distinguishes America from much of the rest of the world is venture capital and in all this debate about uh, the 1 percent, one of the great things about the 1 percent, wherever they get it from and we've talked often on here but that some of the 1 percent – it's not the same people. It's not a, It's not a fixed group but some of the wealthiest people in America earn their money through making the world a better place and some earn it by taking it from the rest of us through the political process but either way, they have – because they have large amounts of money – uh, we have in America the opportunity for venture capital where wealthy people steer money into new new enterprises and that's rare. It's not common around the world. It is a huge source of innovation for America that of course benefits people around the world because a lot of the, the medical devices and innovations we, that, are st- that are going on in technology in Silicon Valley, they're funded by people making a bet that if they make a bad bet, they lose all their money. And if they make a good bet, they make an enormous amount. I love that system. I think it works well as long as we let both parts work, losses and profits. And um, my suspicion, and this comes from conversations I've had with venture capitalists, is that we've hamstrung, we've 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 handicapped that industry recently through regulations that weren't designed to affect it, but of course ended up doing it on un, perhaps unintentionally, such as Sarbanes Oxley. So we made it much harder for for small firms to go public. Uh, small firms. Venture capitalists I've talked to say that's not an option. Everybody now tries to get bought out rather than going public on their own. Get bought out by someone who's already incurred the fixed costs of Sarbanes-Oxley and, and the legal staff that does that. And um, that makes it harder to come up with – we've closed off a route for new products and new ideas.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of cases like that. Um, you know, I think about innovation as involving uh, ideas, money, and markets – It's bringing all those three things, uh, together, which really matter. And the venture capitalist, uh, part of the industry is an incredibly important aspect of that. On regulation more generally, I, uh, I, I, I think we're not, we tend to evaluate regulations one by one. You know, is this a good idea? Is this a good idea? Is this a good idea? And yet, you know, a uh, thousand pounds of uh, feathers. Each one of them is light, but the whole thing is still heavy. And you can have a lot of good regulations, which together is one bad, one heavy uh, uh weight. And I think this is a, a, a problem in our mindset. Uh, Michael Mandel has a nice metaphor. He says, you know, these regulations are like throwing a pebble into the stream. You know, one pebble does nothing, but you keep throwing more and more pebbles and pretty soon you, block up the stream of innovation. And I see us, uh, you know, one of the big influences on my thinking has been uh, Mansur Olson's uh, rise and decline of nations. What Mansur Olson talks about is this accretion of interest groups uh, over time. And you get everyone is trying to divide that pie up uh, more and more in their favor. And it slows down decision-making it makes things more bureaucratic. You need more committees in the small and in the, in the large. And, you know, just look at what's going on in our, in our politics. I look at something like the Hoover Dam. Okay. Let's put aside big government project. Okay. Let's just put aside that for the moment. Could we even build the Hoover Dam today? I mean, technologically, yes, we could do it, but, could politically, do we have the will to do something like that today or would uh, there be so many environmental groups and I'm not just blaming them but uh, so many uh, lawyers, so many state and local governments, so many veto players? We have so many players now who can say no and almost no one who can say yes. When you so- talk about
0: the example, I think is very telling in the book is how little innovation there is in airport creation in the united states right absolutely you can't start you can't build an airport in america it's almost impossible you can't start you can't build no refinery it just it's it's the costs are right now for whatever reason it could be because it's just not productive enough it's hard to believe it looks like it's extremely should be extremely valuable but it's clear there are a lot of costs uh, perhaps worthwhile that but but your point isn't that the costs aren't worthwhile aren't worth paying your point is that the nature of the costs are such that these interlocking aspects of it mean that the real cost is bigger than any one piece of it.
1: Exactly. I mean the real cost is, is getting all these groups together to an agreement which is almost impossible. And Just think about the infrastructure that we have. Uh, a huge amount of our in- infrastructure was built in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s thinking about the interstate highway system and so forth. But we cannot rely on the infrastructure of our past to take us to the future. We need to build our own infrastructure, and right now, I just don't see us even being capable of doing that. You know, I go to China, and you see in China, building going on everywhere, highways, and yeah, I know the highways are running through some out poor a, farmers' land. Out of control,
0: Alex. <laughs> yeah, it could be a good thing we're not building our own infrastructure anymore. It, we got we got too much of it already. Maybe. <laughs> go ahead. Keep, yeah, they don't have any. It's true. that they, don't, they don't have any zoning laws, which I hate. We, That's we, do, right. we had a nice conversation with uh, Ryan Aven about that. How how much these bureaucratic interlocking things keep innovation from happening. Forget innovation. Development is a simpler word here. That's right. But on the other hand, going to a world where
1: you know a central. A cabal is is able to like. It doesn't have to be public. I mean, it, it, the think about the you know the Keystone Pipeline. You're not able to build that. So there's a lot of private in- infrastructure which has simply become too expensive, takes too long to build. I mean, we can build these airports privately, um, but you know, it's just not it's just not possible. And here we have a massive increase in air traffic in the United States, and this tiny bottleneck of airports where we cannot build another one the last one we built was Denver which was I mean, when which is like 78 was the starting of it something like that uh-huh. um, wasn't completed till many years many I think years it was later. a couple weeks ago yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some people are still it's looking like, for their yeah, luggage yeah, no doubt yeah, there's some
0: problems I remember that <laughs> meanwhile
1: China is building like 10 to 100 airports uh, every year uh, th- that's not a way to take us to the in the 21st century I
0: think they like you know, I, I, I semi agree and I think Chinese and, and Japan also, by the way, there's – Keynesian zeal, they seem to like concrete a lot. So they're pouring a lot of concrete in those places, some of which is – I think because the people who pour the concrete or have a lot of friends. But um, uh, we're almost out of time. L- let's talk – why don't you finish – you make some recommendations at the end of the book, some of which we've talk, touched on. Uh, why don't you ma- list them and, and just talk briefly about uh, the ones we haven't talked about?
1: Sure. So uh, we talked a lot about patents, and you know, I, I think we just expanded our patent system uh, too much. We need to prune back on patents to actually leave room for more growth. We need to pay teachers better, and in return, we need to demand better teachers more accountability. And this means more charters, means more vouchers, more private schools as well, and more competitive, a flexible and open uh, system. We've pushed college uh as the totem as the only way to be educated it's one way of being schooled it's not the only way of being educated we need to think more uh about alternative ways of education including apprenticeship programs and including focusing college education more on the stem uh fields uh, we didn't talk much about uh, much about immigration it could be perhaps because you know high school immigration high skilled immigration i think is such an obvious such a completely uh, clear thing to do. That uh, it's a, it's shocking that we haven't done it already. You know we have. You know it's easier. It's li- it's literally easier to uh, win the lottery than it is for a person of advanced and high skills to get a visa into the United States. And what I mean by that is we give out more visas in the lottery program. Know random allocation than we do to these people of extraordinary ability. Now that that's insane. How can you have a system like that where you, you just randomly give out visas and there's more of them than you give to people of extraordinary ability? That's that's crazy. Um, we need to cut back on on regulation, and we need to think about, as I said, regulation as not simply thinking about regulation as each each regulation comes up, we need to think about the pebbles in the stream. We need to think about what happens when you accrete, what happens when these things build up. And I would like to see us change our mindset from the warfare welfare state towards innovation. I do believe that Americans are an innovative people. They're a forward-thinking people. They believe in making the pie bigger. Rather than in fighting over dividing the pie, so I would like to I would like to see a politics which emphasizes innovation more than it does all these other things we've been talking about.
0: My guest today has been Alex Tabarrok. Alex, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you.